I'm Paul Chatterton, one of the co-founders of the Lilac Co-Housing Project in Leeds. I was a first secretary. I'm also my day job is working in geography at Leeds Uni, so I wear kind of many hats. What's wrong with the current housing model in this country? Well, I suppose if we take a focus from the view of Lilac, there'd be three things. First is that it doesn't seem to be able to afford, um, develop, deliver low-impact housing that represents the kind of step change in carbon reduction that we need. That'd be the first thing. Um, the second thing is that it doesn't really allow us to lock in affordability and affordability in perpetuity for future generations, um, which is a big issue given the, you know, the, the drastic disjuncture between um, house prices and wages. Um, and the third thing is it, it doesn't seem to have an ability to, to build kind of the, the meaningful social relationships, which communities are based on it, it just perpetuates this really corrosive individualism around being an individual owner occupier or indeed being at the mercy of a private rented landlord or being stigmatized as a social housing renter so there's an put those three things together and you've got an incredible dysfunctionality incredible so you know the whole thing shot to pieces and and we really need some quite hot-footed experimentation to to respond to that Surely, if we if we want uh, an economy to grow again, we need to build houses. Yeah, and where we live in Leeds, for example, Leeds has got its own um, targets of seventy-seven thousand new houses needed in the next few decades. So, therefore, if we look at what we already deliver, the big volume builders deliver most of this stuff. Now, the the, the growth areas which really need be, need to be promoted around community and cooperative housing, which are tiny segments of the market can really grow, can really flourish in this context. You know, cooperative housing in the UK is 0.5% of the market. So, you know, it, it has a huge opportunity to grow. Um, so as we build these really big ambitious targets, which actually some of them are questionable because there's a, um, we could talk about how we live as well, you know, and the fact that people are um, under occupying housing. But anyway, as we build houses, um, we've really got to kind of rebalance tenure types and deliver, delivery models. And um, uh, the, the, the kind of push at the moment for building absolutely everywhere. Yeah. As, as, as communities, it feels like with the presumption now in favour of development, with planning authorities now getting a housing bonus for every new house that's, that's approved, it's harder and harder for communities to resist kind of un, unwanted, inappropriate uh development what, what what are your thoughts on what communities can actually do to resist this stuff at this stage yeah um there are certainly lots of things one one interesting aspect which is possibly under undervalued in the debate is the need to retrofit what we've already got yeah so we've, we've got vast amounts of housing stocks we've got vast amounts of housing stock and um Basically, how do we retrofit it? So how do we take the, the, the millions of homes we've got in the, in the UK? How do we take the terraces in the cities, the semis in the suburbs, and start to think how can we retrofit low carbon infrastructure, um, affordability, different tenure models, and how do we start to build in community infrastructure? You know, take a terrace, um, create shared ownership across them, start knocking down the back gardens, sharing the, sharing the gardens, Take the middle home, make it into a common house where there's shared laundry, dining facilities, office space, meeting space. So you build in that conviviality and infrastructure 
in the already existing streets. Now, you could do this across every neighbourhood and city across the UK. It'd be a really exciting proposition, retrofitting this stuff into what we've already got. Because um, we're, we're, we're stuck with it, right? We're not going to start mass clearances again like we did in the 60s. Um, so, what, how did Lilac come about? Well, it's an interesting kind of um, six-year story of perseverance. And there was a small group of us in about, about five years ago, uh, six years ago, in fact, who started to think about how can we live differently in the future. Um, and um, we started to throw around ideas, you know, can we live cooperatively? How do we kind of build places where we genuinely would want to bring up a family, where we're going to not feel isolated and which we could afford? So, you know, a lot of this stuff really necessitated ripping up the rule book yeah starting again thinking how do we you know how do we work within but also beyond the current planning system um what are the kind of cooperative affordable models we can use shared ownership um and how do you really build an affordable low-impact house so we went we were always committed to straw bale building so lilac as an entity as it as it emerged we were really committed to building with straw and to being a cooperative and to building a strong community. So these these different ideas came together in this lovely word lilac, which stands for low impact living affordable community. Um, it was a six year story of perseverance, you know, loads of twists and turns, making deals, um, negotiating hard, sticking to our values, building our membership. So much that a group has to do to kind of get from idea to delivery. And uh, what is it? What is it? Yeah. So in a nutshell, what is Lilac? Well, so Lilac is um, it's a co-housing cooperative housing project. Um, it, it's comprised of 20 homes of different sizes. So there's some one beds, some two bed flats and three and four bed houses. So different sizes. There's a big common house in the middle. Um, if it was if I was to describe Lilac, it's a big 0.7 acre site. It's an old Victorian school which was demolished and we bought it after that demolition. And um, the houses are kind of based around a big um, horseshoe shape with the common house in the middle. There's a lovely big pond and shared landscaping. We've pushed the car parks to the edge. So the kids, everyone have got loads of um, um, car-free space to play in. Um, it's kind of like a bit of a blueprint of um, the kind of housing, you know, what housing of the future that we can achieve right now. Um so it feels very different. It feels, you know, when contractors and visitors walk into the site, they say, what is this place? Kind of eco butlins, um, kind of <laughs> retirement community people that we have no reference points in Britain of doing things so radically different. It actually becomes a bit of an aesthetic shock. People are just so overwhelmed at it when they arrive there. And we could certainly link some photos to this um, interview so you can kind of see what, what we're talking about. Um, and why straw bale? What? What did that make possible that concrete blocks don't? Great, yeah, there's a number of reasons why we use straw. One is that it's abundantly available in the UK and in the north. So we could really look at a, a very quick, affordable build um, procurement routes by using straw. It's a really cheap build method. It offers great insulation and U-values. Um, so it's a wonderful, high-insulating product to use for building low-carbon buildings. Um, it's got a wonderful feel. You, you, you coat it with lime render. We, we, we hooked up with a guy who's run a, running a firm called Modcell who pre, creates a prefabricated panel. So the, the, the homes go up very quickly. So that's the low carbon side of it. I mean, straw and timber and lime, the three products which 
the house that I live in now I'm talking to you from is built from is, is three naturally carbon sequestering products. So in its use, um, you know, tons and tons of carbon is locked up into the home rather than bricks and block and cement, which, you know, takes tons and tons of energy um, and CO2, uh, pumps that CO2 into the atmosphere to create. So, so we're on the carbon negative side rather than the carbon positive. On the community side, straw is great because it really allows that hands-on um, building with your community so it can can be used for community building building the process of building a community people you know will come down we had this day in a off-site factory where we we're building the straw bale panels you know throwing straw bales around building them putting the lime on so really give people connection with building their homes so on those two levels it's really great um yeah so the lime panel so so the straw bale panels were tensioned and plastered before they came onto the site that's right. So they're made off site in what we call this flying factory, um, which basically so the timber is high precision cut in Austria. It's a shame that we haven't got a supply chain in the UK. But I think, you know, north of Scotland is the nearest we've got and they're working on that. So high precision cut, um, what we call glue laminated timber arrives. So does the straw bales from the neighboring fields and then the lime render, uh, which is sprayed on. And those three products get put together relatively quickly into these straw bale panels. Um, and uh, they go up like Lego bricks. In the, uh, it, a tractor brings them to site, and they go up like Lego bricks. So basically, um, they come in the back of a tractor, and you get a crane, and they just get put together. So you can see your home go up in a matter of days. Very exciting. Mm. And um, what's the what's the economic model? Because these aren't open market housing. You've developed a quite a, a different, unique model for this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what really gets people's interest in this. We've got we've built this. It's called a mutual home ownership society, an EMOS, and we really want to see this replicated beyond Lilac. Now, the basics of an EMOS is that um, because we're a membership cooperative, everyone owns equity in their home. Now, you buy equity um, by paying 35% of your net income to the society. So every month, every member pays 35% of their net income. Now, all these. 35% of everyone's net income goes into a central pot, which pays one mortgage we've got with a bank, an ethical lender, Tridos Bank. Um, and that pays a corporate mortgage. So there's no individual mortgages. Now, the, the interesting thing is, so you can take that equity away with you when you leave Lilac. So you're buying equity, which you can, you can sell when you leave. The interesting thing, and this is, I think, the real wow factor behind it, is that um, the value of equity is linked to wages and not local house prices. So the value of your equity really flatlines or just dribbles up at about 1.5% a year as it is now calibrated to. Um, what this means really is we've taken the speculation and the commodification out of housing. Yeah, So you can't speculate on houses in Lilac. If you jump out of the housing market into Lilac, yeah, okay, it might be difficult to get back into the housing market, the speculative housing market. But we really see what we're doing is making a stand, you know, against rampant speculation. You know, it's got to start somewhere and we're, we're part of that. So it's quite a big deal. Um, we're a financial cooperative first and foremost. Um, and that's quite, a, you know, that's, that's a real stand against this corrosive individualism we've seen through the housing market and the housing bubbles over the last, you know, since, especially since 2008. So, um, so the money that you the money that you pay, so yep. the thirty five percent of your income that you pay every month. Yeah. So that builds up as a as an amount. So you're saying that when you leave, you can take that in its entirety when you go. 
not not in its entirety and this is where actually it's quite it's it, it does feel quite conventional so um so this is mutual home ownership it's not too dissimilar to home ownership so um where you every month you, your monthly payments go towards buying your equity when you leave um we apply some appreciation which is the increase in average earnings and we also apply some depreciation which we take a little bit of equity off people to pay for um their use of capital items so this is the interesting thing so say you take a roof right on a house it might last uh, 40 years if you've lived in lilac for 10 years we deduct the value of 10 40ths of a roof from you when you leave um so so in a uh, year 40 there's a, a surplus to pay for those new roofs um so it's a little bit different to home ownership in normal home ownership in that sense we've got quite a fancy model which runs all this we got together with some great software engineers and we've we've created this bit of software called dwell which runs all this there's a lot of fancy and complex algorithms which run all this and we rather than it being a bedroom operation where people were scratching their heads and trying to kind of run all this from their bedrooms we professionalized it all and paid for some nice software and we really want to lay so we're, we're trying to lay down bits of infrastructure which other co-ops and community housing projects can use in our wake um because without these bits of the jigsaw it's actually quite difficult for people to get this stuff off the ground themselves mm. so so then how, but you presumably in order for that to work you need a mixture of you need to ensure you have a mixture of incomes in there if everybody's if everybody's signing on or on very very low incomes it's not going to generate enough money surely that's right and so we need to be clear that actually um lilac is what we call intermediate housing now intermediate housing is that bit in the middle which is not very well served in the uk it's uh, intermediate housing is defined as housing which is um of greater value um than than would serve those lowest income cent uh, um, centiles and it's um it's more affordable housing than those who could afford to buy their own home. So it's the bit in the middle, which currently um, is not being provided for in terms of the builders. Um, we have, we know, we, okay, we need more social housing. So we need to make an important argument that this is not, this should not take away from social housing. So what we need in something like a mutual home ownership society, uh, people with um, minimum net incomes. And so what we do for each house type, there's a minimum net income, which is needed to generate enough um, money to pay for the debt associated with that house. Now, they, c they can be quite modest. So, for example, give you one, one typical example. We've got a two-bed on site, right? and there's a couple who live there. Got an average, um, got a combined income of about 15,000 a year, combined net income. So between, you know, that could be 7,500 each a year. So they're quite modest incomes. But between those incomes, they can pay their 35% is enough to allow them to live in that two-bed flat. Um, so it's within reach of people on fairly modest incomes. But yeah, you're right. Um, it doesn't service those on benefits because at the moment you can't accrue equity on housing benefits. And so you're just purely going off um, off income because you might have a you might have one couple who earn twenty five grand a year and that's all they have, and you might have another who have two hundred thousand pounds worth of savings. Does that get taken into account? It's just purely taken off income. Well, actually, no, the interesting thing is we use both savings and income um, to define wealth. So, yeah, it's a good point that we do use both. And so we um, people's uh, the amount of equity we allocate to a particular household is calibrated according to their income and savings. And we can either therefore allocate you 
um, down to 90% of the value of your home or up to 110% according to um, according to your income and savings profile. As we get more um, equity built up in the scheme, we might widen that to let people on lower incomes and higher incomes. And the point of doing that is there's an element of cross-subsidy, as you can imagine. So those on slightly higher incomes are actually taking on more equity shares and therefore indirectly cross-subsidising those people on lower incomes. So there's an important kind of you know cross-subsidy going on there. And then presumably if somebody is made redundant or something, rather than the current model where within a few months they're out of there, they're, they're kicked out, this is there's some flexibility designed into this. Yeah, and it's great. So we've got this thing called the Lilac Equity Fund, which really, we've got this thing called uh, the high earners policy. And the high earners policy top slices money from um, high, really high, well, moderately high earners whose uh, incomes so more than more than is what needed to service the debt associated with their house. Now that surplus goes into this Lilac Equity Fund, which is a little war chest, which Lilac owns, and it's used to for you know to to deal with short-term balance of payment dif- difficulties amongst households. So if one household got into difficulties, it could be used for that. So we've got three or four different options we would support members with, because obviously we're a member-led entity that is meant to support its members. So we've got three or thought three or four things we do before we would have to terminate someone's contract. Now, that's wonderful given that housing associations will go, will go straight to termination of contract, whereas we, we, there's lots of intermediate steps. So the security of tenure, which is afforded in housing corps, especially this EMOS model, is really good. And it's something which all our members have really, um, really vocalized and they're prepared to pay 35% of their net income to give them that extra surety because it's, it's worth more than money at the end of the day, that, that, that kind of the well-being effects you get from that security. So as, as somebody living there yourself with a, with a young family and yeah. 35% of your income going, I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's the kind of uh, benef- the numerous benefits of living in that way and sharing and better for the kids and stuff, but financially, does that work out as a better deal for you than going into the housing market? Um, it certainly does, given um, I haven't had a mortgage up to now, so I haven't, I haven't gained any kind of equity in the housing market in my life up to now. And what it also does is because of 35% is the upper limit of affordability, so we wouldn't really want to go beyond that. Um, and many people might be paying less than 35%, indeed might have paid mortgages off or might be living in very cheap rental accommodation. So we appreciate it. it's not... Um, it's not the most affordable situation. Um, I suppose what people make a decision on is everything else they're getting for that. You know, the shared the the shared common house, the shared spaces, there's allotments on site, there's a pocket park. Um, what you're also getting in the homes is because we're towards passive house code four. Um, I'll give you an example. Our house, a four bed house, um, we have a we had an annual gas. We've lived here for a year now, so we've got our bill, utility bills. The gas bill was just over two, was about two hundred, and the electricity bill was two hundred. So a combined gas and electricity of four hundred for a four bed's fantastic. Mm. You know, when given the average might be a thousand plus. Um, so what you'd have to factor in is the whole whole life cycle, whole house living cost. Yeah, and once you do that, it becomes much you know very affordable. Um. Is there anything, is the developer-led, private developer-led housing model completely broken or can it be reformed, do you think, and how might we do that? Well, there's a few things we'd have to work on. One is land banking. So I think land banking really needs to have some national legislation to prohibit it. Um, I think there's a whole tier of middle-sized regional 
house builders, which are really <clears throat> prepared to take this stuff on. Um, and especially they, they're more responsive to um, community client groups. What we've got with co-housing and community-led housing and community land trust is a really particular client base. You know, if you're a community client, you're a bunch of residents who are procuring and custom building your housing, um, that puts you in a really specific position as a, as, as a client buying your housing will not know how to deal with you will we'll understand your needs and will understand how your internal structures work they're used to dealing with highly individualized professionalized you know project managers from housing associations working to templates and delivering up you know best cost values whereas the agenda is completely different for community-led housing and i think there's some simple stuff that all builders could do to understand the needs of the specific needs of community-led housing clients and what, what we're actually after as a product. If you're procuring your house as a resident, it's really different to procuring it on behalf of a, a, a behalf of an agency. What happens uh, to a society without sufficient affordable housing? What impacts does it have <clears throat> on that society? Well, uh, there's a number of knock-on effects. You get a dysfunctional labour market. And because people can't work and live where they want to. Yeah. So, I mean, as a geographer, I'm interested in this kind of stuff. You get people living, you know, having a tra the travel to work patterns get really messed up. Um, you get overheat in central cities and core cities in London. It's particular where people are having to travel 20 miles because they can't um, and more because they can't afford to live anywhere near where they work. Um, so you get distorted travel to work patterns. Um, therefore, you get more. You get more mobility, you get more carbon, you know, from travel, you get greater stress and anxiety based on, you know, people spending longer in the cars, people spending less time with their families because they're traveling more, people more stressed at work, people were working longer hours. I mean, the list goes on. So really, I mean, this is, you know, this is dear to the hearts of the transition culture. This is really about a relocalization agenda, isn't it? About how do we not just create functional housing markets, but how do we create um functional communities with all the different you know skills bases and local assets and community facilities and housing just one part of it right energy energy infrastructure so this is one part of a bigger picture and i think what we're looking for is you know this is this is a story of community ownership and resident self-control which needs not just to be part of a housing story but part of a you know work culture and energy culture as well so you've you, you you've You've just written a book about uh, capturing the experience of, of of lilac from start to finish. How, uh, I mean, hopefully this is the book kind of answers the question. But how replicable yeah. is what you've done there? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I try to lay out um, some kind of lessons for different sectors like the development industry and the community groups and professionals. I mean, it's replicable if we can in the next ten years lay down key bits of the infrastructure um, which will allow um, this unmet demand to flourish. There's a huge amount of demand out there, people wanting to do this stuff for themselves, you know, as, as, as we've all been highlighting over the last, you know, a few years and decades. Um, putting the right bits of infrastructure in place will allow this stuff to flourish and, you know, aspects of that infrastructure include um, feasibility grants, startup grants from central governments, which we're seeing uh, elements of. Um, land availability and land gifting or peppercorn peppercorn rents from local authorities homes and communities agency those that have land to the community land trust and community housing sectors um, 
We need capacity building. So when groups um, get into this stuff, they can handle moderately complex finance and, and especially community governance, right? So they know how to manage their own relationships. Um, and we need um, we need the developers and architects to, to kind of like start to find a common language with community groups. Um, as a long term, I'd really like to see some kind of Scandinavian model development industry emerge in the UK. What we really lack is a community owned development sector. We see this in Sweden, in Germany, in Denmark, whereby you've got developers that are community owned, right? So the profits from one development are seeded to the next. Now imagine if we had that in the UK, this kind of firm could not only understand in, intuitively community needs because they are from the community, but they start to recycle the profits and, and working on bulk discounts and volume sales, and really, you know, really being able to meet demand. Um, this is a multi-billion pound market in the UK, and I think it's right for, for, for us to get together and service it because um, it was such a small part of the story now we, we could be a moderate part of the story any last thoughts for people who might be sitting there in their transition group thinking yeah we could do that yeah and 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 i think the last thought is you can do it there's a bit of a there's a little bit of a perseverance test the development journey is a little bit long um all this kind of stuff we're doing and the book and the learning that we've got at lilac is trying to shorten that development journey it took us six years i think reasonably you know, it, it should take two or three. And I think if we get all these bits of the uh, piece of the jigsaw in place, you know, people could really start to realize those desires in those timescales as people get organized and start to do this across the country.